I wanted to invite some of you to our welcome meeting that we're going to have immediately uh, following service. So uh, if you are, if this is your first time here, or maybe you've been coming for a while, you'd like to find out more about our church and meet the leaders, the elders here, or maybe you've been here for a while and you're looking for a church home and you're considering membership. If you fit into any of those categories, maybe even another category, you're welcome to join us. Uh, I promise to get you out in less than 15 minutes. That's our goal. Uh, We're going to be in this classroom right over here to your right. So again, if you head over there immediately following service, you get to meet the leaders. And then we'll tell you just a little bit about who we are as a church and what we believe as a church. Um, Give you some material so that you can go home and read more if you like and point you in the right direction if you want to continue to get to know us as a church. So again, if this is your first time, you're visiting or you're considering this church for membership, we ask you stick around. We'll have that welcome meeting in that adjacent room immediately following service just for a few minutes. Stay with us. We have been studying how the book of 1 Corinthians, and we are deep into that study. We have nearly 11 chapters behind us. We've been at it for over a year now. There are five chapters to go in the book, and next up, as we're going verse by verse, is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34, where the subject is the Lord's Supper. The subject there is communion. So I've decided... And the elders agree that this would be a good time to break from our expositional study and preach on the two ordinances of the church, that is, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And then once we've done that and spent just four weeks, we'll be better equipped, I think, to take on the details of that next text regarding the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So starting today, two weeks on baptism and then two weeks on communion. In week one of our look at baptism, my primary focus will be the why and the what of baptism. And then in week two, God willing, the focus will be the how and the who of baptism. I'll be looking to answer questions that we all have about baptism and the Lord's Supper. Regarding baptism, what is baptism? Is it a rite of passage? Is it the apex of VBS? Is it the pinnacle of summer camp? What is an ordinance for that matter? Or what is a sacrament? What does baptism symbolize? Cleansing? Commitment? Union with Christ? How many times should someone be baptized? Who should be baptized? Believers? Unbelievers? Infants? Children? What age? So for the sake of full disclosure, I will be coming to this topic from a particular Baptist 
perspective. That means that the interpretation of these verses that we're going to be looking at that I have found most persuasive and convincing is that of particular Baptists, which was most clearly expressed in the 17th centuries on the heels of the Protestant Reformation. Most Baptists today, whether they know it or not, are sitting on those men's and women's shoulders. And this church, Veritas Church, finds herself in the tradition of the Reformed Baptists, down the river from such great men as John Bunyan and Charles Haddon Spurgeon. But all that said, all that said, I encourage you to, as I have, take all of your presuppositions, and we all have them, Ideas and assumptions about what we think this means or what the Bible teaches about this or that. So take all your presuppositions again and lay them on the table and examine them biblically. You really can't overdo that as a Christian. So take those convictions you have, those presuppositions, those beliefs that you have, regardless of the perspective you've been raised in or come from, and put them on the table and examine them Biblically, be relentless with that your whole life. Do it over and over again. Going back to God's word with the question, what does your word say? What does your word teach? And be settled in your mind that whatever it says, you're going to believe it. You're going to believe whatever it says because it's the word of God. Not written by mere Men, men used as God inspired them to write his exact authoritative word. It's what we're doing every Sunday. So let me begin. Let me read you a a short poem before I pray. A short poem written by John Bunyan about baptism, about the Lord's Supper. It brings the weight of what we're studying to bear while also keeping it in perspective. Two sacraments I do believe there be, baptism and the supper of the Lord, both mysteries divine which do to me by God's appointment benefit afford. But shall they be my God or shall I have of them so foul and impious a thought? To think that from the curse they can me save, bread, wine, nor water, me no ransom bought. Go bow your heads with me. Our Father in heaven, we see so dimly and we need your word and we need your spirit. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. If you are using one of our church Bibles, you'll find today's text on page 784. Matthew 28. You'll see this is the very last chapter of Matthew's account of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus came, he lived, he suffered, he died. He rose from the dead in the place of sinners so that sinners could be reconciled to God. That is the good news. That is the gospel. And Matthew, he tells that story along with Mark, who tells that story, and Luke and John. 
They each have their accounts of the gospel. And by the end of Matthew's telling of the story, Jesus had been resurrected. And then in verses 18 through 20, Jesus gathers his remaining 11 disciples and he gives them their mission. That is the church's mission. Jesus had conquered death. He had conquered death and secured salvation for his people, for all who had and all who would ever believe in him and trust in him. He secured their salvation. He conquered death, raised from the dead. And he was about to, as he comes to his disciples, he was about to ascend into heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father. But first, he gave them these instructions, verses 18 through 20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That age is the church age. It is the age in which we now live. It is the age between the past ascension of Jesus and the future descension of Jesus. At some point, the Bible teaches, unknown to us, Jesus is going to return again. And on that day, he will bring an end to this age. He will bring an end to these days in which we now live, these days of particular glory. These are unique days that we live in between the cross and the return of Jesus. They are unique days where God's people live in the world, in this sinful world, by faith, filled with the Holy Spirit for God's glory and the good of others. That is unique to this age, that we as God's people live in this ruined world because one day we'll live in a perfect new earth and new heavens. But for now, we live in this ruined, spoiled world and we live here by faith. We will one day live by sight when we see Jesus face to face, but now we live by faith. We have been filled with the Holy Spirit and we have been given a mission. And the mission we have been given is outlined here at the end of Matthew chapter 28. But we are to live for the glory of God. And we are to live for the good of others. Now, how do we do that? How do we live for the glory of God? How do we live for the good of others? And that is the guts of Matthew 28, 18 through 20. By virtue of the authority vested in Jesus as king of heaven and earth, he has commissioned the church to, what does our text say? Go. Go and make disciples. 
We are to make disciples. We are to make followers of Jesus. We are to proclaim the good news of the gospel so that people would believe and know and trust and love and obey and enjoy God. Go and make disciples of all nations. When Jesus said that, he was saying the gospel needs to get out of here. Jesus never traveled more than 100 miles from his hometown. The gospel needed to go beyond Jerusalem, beyond Judea, and into Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. So he said, make disciples, not just local disciples, but of all nations. Baptizing is the next word. And this obviously relates to what we're talking about today. Baptizing. That is not a word most of us use outside of church. It is a word that would have been used outside of church in those days. It it means, baptizo means immerse, envelop, plunge. It is the kind of word that sparks images in your mind. There's words like that, and there's words that are not like that. Some words, you just hear the word, and you have images firing off in your mind. Baptizo is a word like that. Immerse, plunge, envelop. Baptizing them, those disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That that means Baptizing them in the name of, that means baptizing them with the authority of, in the authority of, based on the authority of God. Name is singular, that's three persons, one God. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. The church has been given authority to make disciples and then to plunge them to immerse them, authority given by God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He had already established that in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 18, where he gave to Peter and the church these keys. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. There was authority given to his people. Verse 20, teaching them. Teaching them to observe all That I have commanded you. So go, he says, and make disciples. Once you've made those disciples, baptize, immerse, plunge those disciples. I've given you the authority to do that. And then take them and teach them. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Genesis 1-1 through Revelation. Teach God's people what they are to believe. Teach them the truth and teach them how to live the Christian life. This is what we're doing because this is what God has called us to do. That is a difficult, no, that is an impossible task. Go and make disciples of all nations. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's quite a job description. That is a massive calling. And so Jesus emboldens them with these last words, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The end of the age when evangelism will cease, when discipleship will cease, when baptism will cease, when Jesus returns and he calls out the darkness and the light and he separates the sheep and the wolves and he takes his own, his children, to live with him forever in heaven. Until that day when we will be with him physically. Until that day he reminds us that he's going to be with us as his people. We will never be alone. A Christian, it is impossible to be alone. But you feel alone. We feel aloneness. We feel loneliness. We feel distant from people. We feel distant from God. But that doesn't mean it's actually true. The Christian is never alone. Jesus himself is always with us, even to the end of the age. And he is with us to encourage us and to embolden us when it's really tough, and it usually is, to go and make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded. This is not the first time baptism is mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, John, the cousin of Jesus, some of you know, he was immersing people in the Jordan River, but this is the first time that baptism is commanded. This is the first time that baptism is commanded. And who is commanding it? Jesus. Jesus himself. The Lord Jesus Christ which makes baptism an ordinance. So this is what that, that, where that word comes from. Baptism is an ordinance because it is a specific and authoritative command from the head of the church himself. Do this, he is saying. And it's one of only two ordinances, the other being the Lord's Supper. So that makes it very important for us to understand. Bells should go off. There are two ordinances. There are these two specific things that Jesus has commanded us to do. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. So we want to get those things right. We want to think thoroughly about them. We want to think deeply about them. We want to go to God's Word. And as it unfolds, we want to see what does this say about baptism. So moving forward this morning, I'm going to answer just two questions. And I alluded to this in the introduction, but the two questions today will only be, what is baptism and what does baptism signify? Number one, what is baptism? Number two, what does baptism signify? What does it mean to baptize disciples in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? We're being commanded to do it. So we have no right and no authority to think freely about this. 
Well, I think it means this. Or it makes me feel good to think of it like this. Well, what does God's word say? It's a command from Christ. And so we, we have an obligation and a duty to think biblically about baptism. So let's move on to the first question. We'll answer it briefly. Number one, what is baptism? We've established from Matthew chapter 28, it is an ordinance. It's a command that has been given to us by Jesus. John Stott writes, it was the precept of Christ and the practice of the apostles. So we hear Jesus command it, and then we read the book of Acts, this book of history of the early church, and what do we see the disciples immediately doing? They're obeying that command, and they are baptizing disciples. Both baptism and the Lord's Supper were demonstrated and decreed by Jesus. So it is an ordinance of the church, baptism is. It is also, you may have heard this word, it is also a sacrament. People can mean different things by using that word. So here's what I mean, or here's what we mean as a church. A simple definition of a sacrament is an outward sign of an inward grace. Sacrament is an outward sign of an inward grace, and baptism is that. It is a visible sign of an inward grace. It is something you see that has deep meaning beneath it. It is an outward representation of an inward reality. So baptism, it pictures something. It portrays something. It depicts. It dramatizes. It displays something. So that leads to our second question, where we'll spend most of our time. What does baptism signify? What is it picturing? What is it portraying? What is it illustrating? What is it dramatizing? What is it displaying? So let me begin. I'm going to read a couple of statements. And these statements are about this ordinance of baptism. The first is from... Our church's member doctrinal statement, and the second is from our church's confession. So if you're new here, let me explain what I mean by both of those. When it comes to our beliefs as a church, we have a, a creed, you could say. Uh, we have a doctrinal statement. And when it comes to what we teach, not just what we all believe, but when it comes to what we teach as a church, we have a confession. So creeds or doctrinal statements or confessions, here is all they are. They are summaries, written summaries of what the Bible teaches. And everybody has creeds and confessions. Some people have them written down and some people just have them in their head. But we all have things in mind when we hear scripture or when we are asked about certain things that the Bible teaches, we could summarize and tell you what we believe the Bible is saying when it says A or B or C or D. Well, a creed and a confession is just putting that down into writing. So creeds are shorter, typically. They cover less theology 
there is less detail, whereas a confession, it is longer, it covers more theology, and with much more detail. You could say that creeds cover essentials, confessions cover non-essentials. Creeds summarize basic beliefs, confessions summarize comprehensive doctrine. So our creed here as Veritas Church, our creed here summarizes what our entire church agrees on. So those who are members of this church, our creed is what we totally agree on. Our confession is much longer, and not all of our members necessarily agree on what's in the confession. But our elders agree, because our elders then are teaching. We're teaching, unified teaching from the Word of God. So I'm going to go to the doctrinal statement. So this is what, if you're visiting, this is part of what we believe as a church. Everyone who said, I want to be a member here has said, yes, I believe these truths. And this specifically about baptism. Our church doctrinal statement is derived from the New Hampshire Confession of Faith, which was written in 1833. It's almost word for word. That statement was written for Baptist churches, and it was written to accommodate both Calvinistic and Arminian believers at the time. If those words don't mean anything to you, don't worry about it. Here's paragraph 14. Paragraph 14, which is actually word for word from that 1833 statement about baptism. We believe that Christian baptism is the immersion in water of a believer into the name of the Father and Son and Holy Ghost to show forth. So there, it's a sacrament. It's showing something. To show forth what? In a solemn and beautiful emblem. It's a symbol. It's an emblem. Our faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior with its effect in our death to sin and resurrection to a new life. That is the effect of our faith, our death to sin and resurrection to a new life, and that it is a prerequisite to the privileges of a church membership. Now let me read you from our confession. This is a little older. It was written in 1689 by particular Baptists. It is the London Baptist Confession of Faith. First, this is chapter 28, paragraph 1, about both the sacraments. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution. They are appointed by the Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver, and are to be continued in his church to the end of the age. And now here in the next chapter, which is just about baptism, chapter 29, here is paragraph 1. Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ that is rooted in Matthew chapter 28. To those baptized, it is a sign. There it is again. This is showing forth something. It signifies something. It is a sign of their fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of their being grafted into him of remission of sins, and of submitting themselves to God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. So that is a summary of what they believed 
the Bible teaches about baptism. Even if you look at their summary, they have little footnotes, little number one, little number two, little number three, and then you go down and find the number one, number two, number three, and you find scriptures. This is why we believe the Bible teaches this about baptism, and it's rooted in verses, some of which we're going to read this morning. So, remembering our question, what does baptism signify? There are three answers given there. And I would argue that the Bible makes this clear. And we'll look, and you can see for yourselves today. But there are three things. Number one, union with Christ. Number two, remission of sins. And number three, personal commitment to God. So let's go to the Word and see if those are derived from Scripture. And remember, this is really important. More than we're talking about baptism, we're talking about what baptism signifies. It's not the ordinance itself. It's not the sacrament itself. Remember, that's the point. It signifies something. It pictures something. It's supposed to dramatize something, that it appeals to your senses in so many ways so that you capture an inward reality, so that you see in a visual way what it is that God has done to someone and in someone and what that person has done and is doing in response to what God has done. So we can't, especially as believers, talk now about baptism without getting excited because we're being reminded of what God has done for us. So number one, Union with Christ, baptism, baptism, immersion, signifies union with Christ. If you want to turn there, I'm going to read from Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 and verses 3 through 11. Now listen to these verses and how it speaks about baptism. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You hear that? We too, me too, buried with him baptized with him, raised with him. It means united to him. Verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
There's a lot of theology in those verses, but what we are seeing clearly and drawing out is that as Christians, we have been united to the death of Christ. We have been united to the death of Christ, and we have been united to His resurrection. We are united to His death, whereby our sins have been nailed to the cross. Colossians 2 14. We've been united to his death so that his death counts for our death. Him being punished for sin, for our sin. United to him in his death. And we are united to him in his resurrection. Whereby we live now in new life. And are destined still for new life in heaven. Same thing, Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Colossians 2, 11 and 12. In him, that is Christ, in Christ also you. Now the you there is Christians. If you were to look at the context and look up at verse 6, Paul is addressing those who received Christ as Lord. So he's saying to Christians, those who had received Christ as Lord, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That is referring to circumcision of the heart. That is, if you are a Christian, your heart, the word says, has been circumcised. Your heart has been cut. God has cut off and removed your heart of stone and he has given you a heart of flesh, a new heart that loves him, that wants to please him, that is grateful and thankful. Also, he writes, you have been buried with him in baptism. Buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him. So that buried with him, Raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. One more, Galatians chapter 3, verses 25 through 28. Again, this is our union with Christ. We have been united to his death and his resurrection. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Christian, you have been united to Christ You are in union with Jesus. That means that his death, his death, that you were buried with him in his death, that you were united to him in his resurrection, that his death counts for you, that his resurrection counts for you, that Jesus paid the price, that he suffered the penalty on your behalf. He conquered death, and so you too may conquer death. And so you believe in him, and you trust in him. 
And that is signified in baptism. You have been baptized, Galatians 3 says, you have been baptized into Jesus. So picture baptism. You have been immersed into Jesus. You have been plunged into Jesus. You have been enveloped by Jesus. You have been totally and completely surrounded by Jesus. Baptized, Galatians 3, into Jesus. Buried with Him. Raised with Him. You see the picture. That's the first thing baptism signifies. It is our union with Christ. Number two... Remission of sins. Baptism signifies remission of sins. And by remission, we mean forgiveness and cleansing. Forgiveness and cleansing. Letting go of sins. Forgiveness means to let go. That God has let go of our sins. That God is... No longer holding them against us. I mean, how many sins do you have that God could hold against you? How many things have you done that God could hold against you? What on this day do you feel particularly guilty about? And ashamed for? I bet you, like I, have some things. Guilt. Shame. And yet for the Christian, God does not hold those sins against us. He lets go of those sins. Not only that. Not only that. And this is really important for those of you who are Dealing with shame for far too long. Like shame is quick. It should be. Shame should drive you to the cross and drive you to Jesus and drive you to coming out with it and confessing it before God and before others and, and laying it all out on the table and then being assured of Christ's forgiveness and then committing to changing and going the other way until you do it again. And then putting it on the table and confessing it and receiving forgiveness again. But that's the purpose of shame. Right? Adam and Eve, shame. Hiding themselves, covering themselves, running. Not wanting to interact with God. They knew they had done something wrong. I feel it. You feel it. And then God comes to us and says, there's a way for you to be forgiven. There's a way for you to be cleansed. And so shame should not last. But for some of you, it does. You still feel shame for things years old, some of you decades old. And you need to be reminded this was signified in your baptism, that you have been scrubbed clean. Not only is your sin not held against you and it's let go and it is forgiven, but the stain of your sin is actually removed. That you have been washed clean. It is the removing of punishment, but it is the removing of the stain. Baptism is a sign of that. It is a sign of spiritual cleansing through the forgiveness of sins. For those of you that were baptized maybe later in life, you understood this, so you're understanding it now. 
And it was significant when you were baptized because there were so many sins that you, like I, had racked up. And to think that you had been forgiven, you had been cleansed, you had been washed clean, you had been immersed into this water as a symbol of the cleansing power of God. And you were brought up and out, a new creation. The old gone, the new had come. It was signifying what God did with you and in you, forgiven you of your sin and cleansed you from your sin. And so here's what Ananias said to the Apostle Paul right after his conversion, after Paul's conversion. And now why do you wait? Here Paul was a new disciple. Rise and be baptized. And then listen to the words he used. And wash away your sins, calling on his name. See, baptism, this sign, it, it reaches you. It reaches you. The water, you see the water with your eyes. You hear the splash of the water. You see the person come out of the water. You see them soaked. You see them drenched. You see them smiling. You see them embracing. What are you seeing? You are seeing. It's, it's hitting you all kinds of ways. You are seeing that they have been washed. Their sins have been washed away. Not by magical water in the baptistry or in the trough that we use here. It's tap water. But it's signifying that you've been washed clean. Titus 3.5 He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration. There's the image again. Regeneration is when you're born again. When God makes you a new creation and the old is gone, the new has come. And Paul describes that to Titus as washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It is pictured in baptism. 1 Corinthians 6.11 And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were washed. Those of you who have sinned greatly, you know what it's like to feel dirty. You know what it's like to feel stained. You know what it's like to feel ruined. You know what it's like to feel unclean. And if you are in Christ, you have been washed. Completely and totally cleansed. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean. There's water again. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed, our bodies washed with pure water. Water is a symbol of judgment in your Bible. Think of the flood. Think of Psalm 88.7, your wrath, the psalmist writes, lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Water is a symbol of judgment. Jonah 2.3, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me. He's not just talking about literally the water. 
He's talking about the guilt of his sin. And the flood surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows, they passed over me. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus told the disciples about this baptism that Jesus was about to face, and he was referring to the judgment of God on the cross that he was about to face. So think of it this way. We, as believers, have gone down into the waters of death and the waters of God's judgment, and we have emerged unscathed. Right In baptism, you're not held under. That should be it. We should die for our sin. We're not held under. We are brought forward in new life. We've been cleansed. We've been renewed. And that safe passage is by the merits, the work of Jesus Christ. As Christians, we know this. We know this, which brings us to the third thing that baptism signifies, and that is personal commitment to God. In baptism, we are going public. We are going public with our faith. Baptism is something that we do, of course. It is voluntary. We don't just grab people and baptize them. We believe and we are baptized. We understand the gospel and then we, des- we understand that we've been united to Christ. We understand that we've been forgiven, that we've been cleansed. And then we desire to obey Jesus and to publicly proclaim our allegiance to him through baptism. So baptism signifies a personal commitment to Christ. Baptism professes. It says something. Baptism symbolizes a saving response to the gospel. This is one distinction between the Old Testament sign of circumcision and the New Testament sign of baptism. Here's what Samuel Waldron says. Baptism, therefore, professes what circumcision demanded. Circumcision did demand a new heart indeed, but it did not profess a new heart. Baptism professes a new heart. Listen to these verses in which people are becoming disciples of Jesus and then portraying that new commitment through baptism. This is after Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? What do we do now? And Peter said to them, repent. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise. Repent, the promise. Repent, be baptized, be saved. That's the promise. For the promise is for you and for your children. Tell your children that promise. And for all who are far off, this is back to Matthew 28. Go to all the nations, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That is the elect, those whom God has predestined to save. You don't know who they are. And so you share and proclaim the gospel. You go and make disciples of all nations. And you baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And you teach them to obey 
all that God has commanded. Verse 41, so what did they do? Those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Baptism, I think, is an expression of Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 and verse 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, Jesus said, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. So in summary, baptism is a beautiful emblem. It is a beautiful ordinance through which a person's union with Christ, their salvation is portrayed. Forgiveness of and cleansing from sin is portrayed. Personal commitment to Christ is portrayed. The meaning of baptism is a display of personal salvation caused by union with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Baptism is a visible sign of that invisible reality. It is a visible sign of the inward work of God's grace in salvation. It is the public proclamation that a person has been regenerated and they have been given new life by God. So in conclusion, the title of this series, and I didn't mention it, but the title of this four-week series is Gospel Displays. As we're thinking about baptism and then the Lord's Supper, gospel displays. It's what we have in baptism. It's what we have in the Lord's Supper. We have the gospel on display. The gospel, the power of the gospel being pictured Portrayed, depicted. G.I. Williamson writes, Baptism simply expresses the verbal content of the gospel in nonverbal form. Another author said, Baptism is a symbol of both the blessings of the gospel and the saving response to the gospel. It symbolizes repentance and forgiveness. So through these sacraments, through baptism and the Lord's Supper, the world sees the power of the gospel on display. We'll talk about the Lord's Supper in weeks to come. Many of you have seen baptisms elsewhere or here. And when you see baptism, you're seeing the gospel on display. And when you see the Lord's Supper, you're seeing communion with Christ on display. In baptism, you are seeing a sign of covenant that is committed relationship. You're seeing a sign of covenant initiation. And communion is a sign of covenant renewal. Think of baptism as the front door into the house. And the Lord's Supper is the Lord's table. It is the table where the family gathers week after week after week. Because they've been brought into the family of God. For those of you who are here today who are believers... I hope you're encouraged as you think about what Christ has done in you. You have been 
united to Christ. You have been forgiven of your sin. You have been cleansed from your sin. For those of you who are here and are not believers, you could be united to Christ. You could be forgiven of your sin. You could be cleansed from your sin. And Jesus calls out to you. He called out to you in his word. He calls out to you through Christians. He's calling out to you now through the preaching of his word to come to him. If you know that you are a sinner, and if you know that you have grievously offended God, and you have not lived the way that he has designed you to live, and if you know that you are a sinner who is destined to pay for those sins, and to be rightly and justly punished for those sins, why don't you come to Jesus? Why don't you come to him and be united to him? Why not come to him and be forgiven for every sin that you've ever committed and every sin you ever will commit? Why not come to him who are weary and burdened and lonely and depressed and discouraged and burdened and find the rest and peace and hope and joy that can only be found in Jesus? You could be united to Christ. You could be forgiven of your sin. You could be cleansed from your sin. So come to him. Believe this gospel and turn from your sin and place your trust in him. We move on now as we do every week to the other ordinance. The other sacrament, which I'm excited to look at in weeks to come. But the Lord's Supper, where we come together every week. And we commit ourselves again to Christ. We remember what he did for us on the cross and in the tomb. We proclaim that to each other and to anyone who's with us, to the watching world. Paul writes in the chapter we're studying in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he betrayed, was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're visiting with us today, Communion is for Christians and for believers. If you are a Christian who has turned from your sin and placed your faith in Christ and you have committed yourself to him and his body, his family, or a part of this church or another church uh, that preaches the same gospel that you're hearing today, if you are a Christian, you're a baptized believer, then you are free to take communion with us today. We ask you to enter into the center aisle and there'll be leaders up front to serve you bread and juice, those emblems. You take them back to your seat and then wait, and we'll take them together as a family. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word and the truth that is in your word. And we thank you, God, for saving us. 
We thank you for uniting us to Christ because we would have no other way to heaven. And we thank you for your forgiveness and your washing and that you've removed our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. We thank you, God, for giving us dramatic pictures of this, even in baptism and the Lord's Supper. We pray now that you would be glorified as we remember and proclaim the death of your son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.